Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Christopher McKittrick, who wrote Somewhere You Feel Free, Tom Petty in Los Angeles. Welcome back, Christopher. Thanks for having me, Stephen. This was a really interesting book, and it's not a uh, straight bio, as we talked about, but filtered through the Los Angeles lens that Tom Petty embraced early on. He was a northern Florida native outside of Gainesville and split for L.A., I think it was 74, with Mud Crutch and Never to Return. Yeah, that's correct. Like my previous book, which was Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones in New York City, in uh, this book, I like to explore an artist coming from a different area and really putting a stamp on a particular location. And for Tom Petty, I mean, yes, he's from Florida. He never lost that Northern Florida accent of his, but he is so much a part of Los Angeles. Almost his entire career as a musician, recording, performing took place in Los Angeles. And so it just seemed like a natural fit. And uh, Mud Crutch, they didn't make it, but Petty stayed and he formed the Heartbreakers with a couple of those band members. And despite the personnel makeup, this was really a true Los Angeles band and its sound and its musical influence. Yeah, uh, something that was very interesting about about Tom Petty is, again, even though he was from northern Florida and, and his bandmates were also out of Florida, even though the band formed in L.A., he was very much stuck to his guns by saying that the Heartbreakers were a Los Angeles band. Uh, he felt that the band was part of the Los Angeles music tradition of, of Buffalo Springfield and the Birds, and he was very passionate about that. And he would get very almost insulted, I would say, if someone referred to the band as Southern Rock. Not that he had a problem with Southern Rock. He, he, he always said, you know, I'm a big fan of the Allman Brothers, but that's not what we are just because we came from Florida. And he often would also point out, you know, Jim Morrison was from Florida and nobody thinks the Doors are a Florida band. Yeah. And, you know, you're right. He did take offense at times and, and they often were referred to as a Florida band. And of course, they moved to L.A. and instantly embraced that culture. They hit the whiskey, which must have seemed like a dream. You know, from a kid from Gainesville, like Sunset Strip and the whiskey must have been just everything. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's sort of amazing about Tom Petty's stories, he really came of age as rock and roll was becoming a thing. Very famously, when he was a young kid, he met Elvis on a movie set in Florida. And then he was part of that generation that saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, and it just blew his mind. So the idea of rock and roll Los Angeles being this center of recording, you know, really appealed to him. So the idea that, you know, you could walk around town and go to the whiskey or just at that point, L.A. was just dotted with record labels. Every record label had some sort of office in Los Angeles. And, you know, it, it just seems kind of odd today because you would never do it this way. But when he was looking for a record deal, he simply just went to all the different record label offices to see if anyone would be willing to record his band. And, and that had to be so exciting for someone that came from Gainesville, Florida, which in itself is a pretty big town. They have the university there, but it's certainly not Los Angeles. Right. I'm guessing New York probably wasn't ever a consideration because of weather and because it's so different from Florida. That was the two cities that, that uh, they thought about going, and I, I believe the biggest factor was the weather. But, and, and as much of a joke as that seems to, by that time, Los Angeles really had become the recording capital of America. You know, New York certainly earlier in the 20th century, without a doubt. But by that time, you know, the entertainment industry had really moved, including the recording industry, to Los Angeles. 
Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, they're looking for a deal. And there's a great story in your book. Can you tell us the phone booth story? So the this story is just one of those rock and roll myths that you think is, is too good to be true. But Petty swore up and down that this happened in his life. So the band is, as I said, in Los Angeles. This is what's still in the mud crutch days, looking for a record deal. And they're going to different record label offices. Some are so showing more interest than others. Some are saying, hey, you know, maybe we'll do a single with you or whatever. But uh, not really finding the enthusiasm that they're looking for. Tom Petty goes into a phone booth across from a diner where they're grabbing a bite to eat. Uh, and he's going to pick up the phone book uh, uh, to see if he could find other record labels that weren't on the list that he had with him. And sure enough, he looks down at the floor of, of this phone booth and he finds a list of dozens of record labels just dropped on the floor, which is very exciting because that's exactly what he was looking for. But on the other hand, it made him scratch his head and goes, you know, I'm not the only person that's doing this out here. You know, at least one other person is doing the same thing I'm doing. So there's a lot of competition. But uh, sure enough, I mean, that's just one of those bolts of lightning moments in rock and roll history. Yeah. And it's important to note that his band was really big in Gainesville. Right? They, they were like the biggest Florida band, you know, that not other than the Allman Brothers and that. But they, they were pretty big. Yeah, uh, Mudcrutch got to the point where they play sort of these festival shows at this farm where the most of the band lived. It was called the Mudcrutch Farm. And they would have thousands of people show up to these festival shows, totally not organized, you know, in a in a in an official way or anything. Um, but they had flyers and they would and they would draw these huge crowds. You know, the real reason why they wanted to get out of get out of Gainesville is they had done all they could accomplish. You know, uh, in almost every city, every every town has that one band that's the you know the the, the big the big band in the city. Or still to this day, I, I feel that there's a lot of towns that have that one band, the big fish in the little pond, so to say. And uh, you know, they were ready to take the plunge to see where else could we take this. And it's interesting because they they take the plunge, they drive cross country, they work their butts off, they're looking for labels. There's the phone booth story and. I think they may have gotten an offer, as you mentioned, but they end up on a label out of Oklahoma. That's right. They actually do get a record deal when they were out in California. Uh, so they, they decide that they're going to they're gonna head west with the band, going back to Florida, coming back to California. Uh, but right before they leave, Petty gets a phone call from Shelter Records, which at the time was co-owned by Leon Russell, who, of course, is from Oklahoma. On the call, they say, look, I know you got another deal, but on your way out to California, you know, Oklahoma is not that far off. Could you just uh, stop by and, uh, you know, meet us in Oklahoma? We have a studio there and, and see if we're the right fit for you. Petty and the Mud Crutch ended up meeting the person who co-owned the label with, with uh, Leon Russell, which was uh, Denny Cordell. And he persuaded them. He said, look, I, I, I'm the right fit for your band. I know what sound you're going for. Let's, you know, sign with Shelter Records. And they did. And Denny Cordell, I mean, it's really interesting in your book, some great stories, but he really took Tom Petty under his wing and just turned him onto all kinds of new music. Yeah, what's very interesting is for almost, you know, it wasn't quite a year, but for several months, Mudcrutch wasn't really allowed to record anything yet. Denny Cordell wanted them to get absorbed in all types of music. And, and you know, you have to think about this. It's, it's very different nowadays where we can pull up our Spotify and listen to a huge amount of music, almost anything that's ever been recorded that ever had been on the charts. You know, living in Gainesville, Florida and buying records on your own or listening to the radio, you didn't quite have that reach. 
So there was so much music that Petty was just not familiar with, and Mudcrutch was not familiar with, that Denny Cordell had access to because A, he was in LA, and B, he was the head of a record label. And so there would be days that Tom would just sit with Denny Cordell and listen to records and listen to stuff that he had never heard before, old blues stuff, stuff coming out of England that you know had never made its way to Gainesville, all this kind of, and really was an education. Uh, before Mudcrutch even started recording, they had this great education of learning about all different types of music. And, you know, I, I think that ha had to be invaluable because as we would see later in the career of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, they had influences all over the place and played many different styles of music that, you know, probably would not have happened if it was not for this education. Yeah, and played almost all of them pretty flawlessly. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really interesting uh, to, to hear what he was listening to and then try and figure out, like, did this influence this and this? And uh, very interesting. And Drummer Stan Lynch also tells a really interesting Cordell story. You know, Stan Lynch was the drummer for the Heartbreakers from the first album till till uh, Mary, they recorded Mary Jane's Last Dance for their Greatest Hits album. When they were recording the first Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album, there was just something about a groove that uh, in, the, in a song that Lynch was just not getting. So Denny Cordell uh, took him. Jumped in a jumped in a car, <laughs> you know, in a, in a sports car, and and made and and just kind of gave him an education on rhythm, driving the sports car, stopping and starting, and they ended up going to a uh, Bob Marley concert that night to uh, to just kind of learn a little bit about rhythm. And so Stan Lynch was like, that was just such an invaluable experience, and certainly taught him a lot. Well, it's funny because you had mentioned that Cordell told him, I think we'd be a good match. And Leon Russell, the other partner there, also took Tom under his wing. And, and that would really, really help them in the studio. And they would very much be studio rats as well as a live band. But uh, Leon Russell helped them immensely. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we started talking about the Heartbreakers here. And, you know, some people often ask, what happened between Mudcrutch, the Heartbreakers, you know, this, this weird band name that would actually eventually come back decades later. But uh, what happened there? And... You know, as great as Mudcrutch was, as successful as they were in Florida, they just couldn't get it together in the studio uh, in, in Los Angeles. They recorded a single, put it out there. It did nothing. It got no attention except a little bit of a blurb in Billboard magazine that, hey, this is something interesting. So eventually, after Mudcrutch just kept hacking at it to try to record an album, Denny Cordell said, look, you know, it's not working. He made Tom fire the band, but said, you know, I want you, Tom. In fact, Leon Russell wants to work with you. Um, so Tom ended up hanging out with Leon Russell quite a bit at Leon Russell's house in the Valley in Los Angeles. And they just went around town meeting all these different producers and things like that because Leon Russell had this idea that he wanted to make a record with a different producer on every track. Brian Wilson would produce a track. George Harrison would produce a track. And what was amazing about that, it gave Tom Petty an opportunity to meet all of these amazing musicians in Los Angeles, you know, and, and get an education from all of them. Interestingly enough, Petty and Russell ended up barely writing anything together. Tom would end up instead forming the Heartbreakers and recording their debut album. Obviously, L.A. was the place to be, and they made the right choice. So the recording history of the Heartbreakers would be consistently, if not entirely, L.A.-based, uh, either at the legendary studios or home studios or band members and friends studios, right? Correct. Do they ever record outside of LA? 
They, they did record a song with Bob Dylan in Australia when they were on tour with Bob Dylan. There were a couple of one-off things here and there, but you know, by bulk, if you go through album by album, it's, it's, it's all Los Angeles. So I mentioned the second album, You're Gonna Get It, and that got some, some really good press, and the band's reputation starts to grow. What does Petty do and with who with his first big royalty check? He uh, bought a car. He went with Bruce Springsteen to Tower Records. They just had a night on the town. And the, the two of them, you know, who are two musicians that you can definitely see a lot of crossover in, in their influences and who they are uh, as performers. They were really kindred souls in that way. And even though their paths didn't cross that often in their careers, uh, I do remember like when, when Tom Petty passed away, that was when Springsteen was in the midst of doing his uh, Broadway show. And he, he put out this short, heartfelt statement about how, how much of a loss Tom Petty's death was. And, you know, you, know, you never saw like a Springsteen Petty tour or anything like that. But they did have a lot of crossover in terms of, of their influences and, their, and, and how they felt about rock music. And Tom being L.A. based now would also be at the forefront of a new music promotion, which is something he would take advantage of throughout his career, and that was MTV. And he says, I was surprised at how bad it was. If you ever get the chance, I believe, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube where they have the first couple hours of MTV, you know, when it launched with Video Kill the Radio Star, and then the, it has the first couple hours of the music videos. You know, this was revolutionary, changed the business. There's no question about it. But the music videos of the early MTV era were not that great for the most part. Uh, a lot of them were pretty boring, performance-based, you know, and, and not that there aren't musicians that are exciting performers, of course, but, you know, it'd be, you know, four or five guys or gals singing and looking at the screen, you know, not taking full advantage of the creative possibilities of a music video. And it wasn't until the Heartbreakers put out their music video for uh, You Got Lucky, where a music video kind of had a backstory. Um, and, and what do I mean by that? Well, in the music video for that, it's kind of this Mad Max sort of futuristic video where the Heartbreakers end up in a desert and find a tent that's filled with all of this vintage equipment and stuff like that, you know, video games, guitars, things like that. And, uh, you know, that sounds like not much of a story to it, but it, it had a little bit of an intro to the video where the Heartbreakers arrive. And that little intro had never been done before. Not even Michael Jackson had done something like that. And Michael Jackson, of course, would become the king of MTV videos. Um, and the Heartbreakers would then, from then on, just have creative video after creative video because Tom Petty said, look, if I got to make these videos, I might as well make them entertaining for my audience. So there's so many classic Heartbreakers videos. Uh, of course, there's Don't Come Around Here No More, which is the famous Alice in Wonderland video. The uh, video for Jamming Me, which is, has all the cool TV effects going right, on right. on his later albums. You know, I Won't Back Down, certainly almost a, well, a half Beatles reunion is in that video running down a dream there's this cool cartoon effect going on free falling probably one of the most memorable videos he ever did uh and then uh of course you know last dance with mary jane with uh kim kim bassinger uh as, as uh the corpse and there's just so many great videos that, that tom petty made and uh really influential and really memorable and really put a kind of a, a, a different image to his music sometimes the videos had very little to do with the actual songs 
but uh, they were memorable, and that's what helped them became even a bigger band. And you mentioned Don't Come Around Here No More, which he made with Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, and MTV would demand an edit of that video, wouldn't they? Yes. Uh, so famously in that music video, Tom Petty takes on the persona of the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland, and the video itself is pretty trippy uh, because it's pretty much based on one of the trippiest children's books of all time, uh, Alice in Wonderland. And in the video, there's one part where the young woman playing Alice, Wish Foley, uh, gets turned into a, a cake and heartbreakers are all cutting up the cake and eating her. Um, <laughs> it sounds a bit like more horror movie than it really comes across in the music video. But MTV demanded an edit because apparently it looked like the heartbreakers are having too much fun slicing her up. Tom in particular, they thought his smile was just a little too sadistic. <laughs> so they said, look, we don't have a problem with you uh, cutting up a, a woman who's a cake, but you just can't look like you're enjoying it too much. So they had to edit some of the uh, some of the heartbreakers reaction out of that, which I think is sort of wild in, in, in a sense. It's maybe not as good, though, as Mary Jane's Last Dance with Kim Basinger, who you mentioned. That video features necrophilia? Uh, yeah, I mean, not, uh, certainly implied, <laughs> certainly implied. But yeah, Tom Petty plays what looks like, you know, seems to be a mortician. And uh, of course, beautiful woman, uh, dead woman comes into his place of work. And for whatever reason, he just decides this woman's too beautiful to bury. I got to bring her home and has a candlelight dinner with her and dances with her. And I mean, it's and again, an example that has seems to have very little to do with the actual lyrics of the song, besides the fact that they both involve dancing. But yeah, just this visually beautiful video, even though it's, of course, totally sick in a lot of ways. Well, here we are talking about it, however. So I guess that worked, you know. Yeah. So in 1987, we talked about Tom's ever-expanding circle of friends and, you know, so many musicians in, in L.A. And uh, that circle would dramatically expand. He went out to dinner in Studio City with his daughter one night. And who did he meet there? He met George Harrison, of course, of the Beatles. George Harrison and Tom Petty just had this remarkable friendship for the rest of Harrison's life. You know, obviously, Petty revered the Beatles, loved them. But uh, the fact that Harrison sort of saw him as a peer as opposed to like a just fan uh, that happened to also be a musician really meant a lot to Petty um, throughout his life. And they would eventually, of course, become members of the probably the best supergroup of all rock and roll supergroups, the Traveling Wilburys. And Jeff Lynne, I think, was at that dinner as well. And, and those two guys would also have a massive influence on Tom Petty's first solo album. Yes. So uh, Jeff Lynne, of course, from Electric Light Orchestra, became something of a producer, genius, you know, well-regarded throughout the industry and helped George Harrison make his comeback album, Cloud Nine, in the late 80s. After that album came out, Tom Petty had actually ran into uh, Jeff Lynne uh, in Los Angeles and, and said, uh, they were actually driving next to each other. And Tom Petty said, hey, pull over. And they pulled over and Petty said, I really want to work with you because, you know, I love the sound of Cloud Nine. I think it's a great album. So Jeff Lynne said, all right, let's uh, let's get together and do a couple of demos, uh, you know, uh, do you know anyone who has a studio? And he said, well, Mike Campbell of uh, the Heartbreakers, he's got a studio at his house, so let's meet up there. And they started working on, on a set of songs that, again, were supposed to be demos. But as they started working on it, Petty and, and Campbell would end up learning a tremendous amount from Jeff Lynne on how to produce an album. And these 
demos were really not demos. They were release quality songs that they were putting together. And that ended up becoming the uh, leading to Full Moon Fever, which was Tom Petty's first solo album, even though the line between Petty's solo work and Heartbreaker's work it was really always kind of blurred. Mike Campbell is all over Full Moon Fever and other members of the Heartbreakers, with the exception of drummer Stan Lynch, are all on Full Moon Fever, uh, contributing parts here and there. But uh, Jeff Lynn taught Tom Petty a tremendous amount about recording and it's evidenced by all the hits that are on Full Moon Fever, uh, including Free Falling, Running Down a Dream, and I Won't Back Down. Yeah, it's a great record. And, uh, you know, uh, Tom, you know, he turns with, into the traveling Wilburys with these guys. But, you know, the rest of the band, they weren't just sitting around. I mean, you mentioned Mike Campbell, but Ben Montench was out there playing and, and they were all taking advantage of, you know, what is L.A. and, you know, the musicianship around there as well. So I don't think... It doesn't seem like there was any hard feelings about a Tom Petty solo record. I think there were initially because it just sort of snuck up on them. They were all expecting to go in the studio and record another Heartbreakers album. And eventually Tom said, well, actually, I don't need you for this one. So that certainly, I'm sure, hurts on some level. But one thing to keep in mind about the Heartbreakers is they're not just a great group together. The Heartbreakers as a whole are some of the most dynamic studio musicians in the industry. Uh, even to this day, Chris Stapleton, who's just this this revered country uh, musician, just had uh, on his recent album, Mike Campbell and Ben Montench perform on that album. Ben Montench has been, was on the last uh, Dylan album, but you know, and you could go through the the songs that the, that the other members of the Heartbreakers have played on and it's, or co-wrote. And it's just extraordinary to see some of the songs that came out there. I mean, uh, you know, to think that, a song like Boys of Summer by Don Henley, which was co-written by Mike Campbell. That was a song that Tom Petty turned down and mm. said, oh, I don't really mm. think that's uh, there's much to this song. And Campbell takes it to Don Henley and it's a, and it's a huge hit. The, yeah, so the Heartbreakers weren't sitting around waiting for Tom for their call. They said, you know, if, if you're going to do your own thing, we'll do our own thing. And, and it worked out quite well for, for all of them. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
We're speaking with Christopher McKittrick, who wrote Somewhere You Feel Free, Tom Petty in Los Angeles. You know, it seems we've been talking about the music and that influence of Los Angeles on Tom Petty and the band. But uh, it seems that with the tour writer of the Full Moon Fever tour, it seems Petty was perhaps becoming more California-minded. You know, what can you tell us about that? Because some of the things I've read, he had previously espoused kind of different strategies with drink cans and highway signs that the tour writer kind of negated, I guess. Yeah, very, uh, I, I like to do that little contrast in, in, in the book because certainly as as you age, your opinions on things change and uh, and that comes with not just aging, but also different levels of success, different levels of influence in the world. So there's just some great quotes of Tom when he's younger. You know, he sounds, uh, you know, kind of a, kind of bratty in some ways. There's There's this great quote about how you know, uh, if I, whenever I see a sign that says don't litter, I throw a Coke bottle at it, you know, uh, because, you know, screw them, you know, kind of stuff, you know, re- really stuff you'd expect a, a young rock star to, to kind of say. But yes, by the Full Moon Fever Tour, Tom is, is, is supporting a lot of environmental causes. No styrofoam can be backstage. On several of the tours, they asked fans to bring, you know, cans of food to donate for for various causes. Uh, Petty becomes very anti-nuclear power, uh, especially that's a big issue in California at this time. So, yeah, become very, very environmentally minded as opposed to how he was. And even peace in L.A., right? And I think that was in response to Rodney King. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, During the L.A. riots, the Heartbreakers recorded a song, Peace in L.A. They recorded, released it and had it on the radio and MTV like within three days. It was a charity single to raise money for several L.A. based charities. And uh, to this day, it it still generates money for those charities uh, because it was on some of the box sets and compilations and things like that. So that was something that Petty was always kind of pretty proud of that, you know, a song that really was an idea idea was later was on TV and making money for good causes like within three days. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, it speaks also to the, the efficiency of the band and, and probably, you know, Petty Ed's boss and, and all that. But three days, that, that's just amazing. Speaking of L.A. connections, uh, Rick Rubin, the producer, would step in and have a lot of influence as well. But he also would employ the Heartbreakers as a backing band to another legend. Yes. So um, Rick Rubin would eventually start working with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers when uh, Tom Petty moved to Warner Brothers after uh, his contract with MCA ended. And um, the first thing he did with the band was record the bonus tracks for the Greatest Hits album, which one of which was uh, Mary Jane's Last Dance. Then, of course, Rick Rubin would be a huge part of the Wildflowers album. He worked on a few other albums with Petty and the Heartbreakers. But at the same time, Rick Rubin, of course, was kind of exploring different areas of of uh, different genres. You know, of course, he came up as sort of a rap guy, but that's not all that he was interested in. And and one thing that Rick Rubin was very passionate about was the resurrection of Johnny Cash's career, the, the country icon. By the beginning of the 90s, Johnny Cash was at the lowest point of his professional career in terms of album sales. Uh, Rick Rubin thought, that, hey, this guy's an icon, he could do a lot more. So the, uh, Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash would work together for the rest of Cash's life on what were later called the American recordings, the American albums, uh, which had Cash re-recording old stuff, recording new songs, recording songs by contemporary artists. A second of the two albums, uh, Unchained, uh, featured the Heartbreakers 
and Tom Petty as the backing band for Johnny Cash. The album contains this extraordinary cover of uh, Tom Petty's song, uh, Southern Accents which I'm sure was a really special thing for Tom Petty. But what's sort of amazing about the album is that the Heartbreakers ended up winning a, you know, the, the album won a bunch of awards and it goes to show how good of a band the Heartbreakers were because they're winning country album awards, you know, and they're a rock and roll band. So really cool stuff there. Yeah. And you mentioned it and it's worth noting because it's, I found it really strange. Uh, Mary Jane's Last Dance. It was a bonus track on a greatest hits, which, Petty detested the idea of and didn't want to do it, but he eventually relented. And then, of course, that song becomes the greatest hit in and of itself. It's yeah. just crazy. Yeah, it was, the, the, it was, he, he was just so annoyed at the situation because he's like, if it's a greatest hits album, why are we putting on new stuff? It's not a hit. You know, it doesn't fit the album. And sure enough, Rick Rubin goes, don't worry, just, just let's record something, you know, an old song that you never finished. So he had this song called Indiana Girl that he had started at during the full moon fever sessions. And they started playing around with it and turns out it's the, one of the biggest hits of his career. So yeah, it does fit <laughs> on the greatest hits album. It's crazy. Well, he was a major star and extremely successful and, and probably will go down, you know, as, as, an all-star, but you know, sadly we know how the story ends. And in the end, Petty is, has to be one of Los Angeles's favorite sons. They played, I think more shows there than anywhere in the world. And it's ironic that his very last gig would be at an absolutely iconic LA venue. Yes. So the heartbreakers over the course of their career has pretty much performed at every major venue that you could think of in Los Angeles. Uh, Everything from the whiskey early on in their career to later in their career, they did this phenomenal run of shows at the Fonda Theater in Hollywood, uh, playing playing a lot of deep tracks. They, of course, played the Forum, but uh, really sort of towards the end of the Heartbreakers career, one of their home bases became the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, just and, and if you've never had a chance to see a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, I, I, I highly recommend it. It's just this gorgeous venue up in the Hollywood Hills, outdoor. You know, you could not ask for like a better experience. Um, just this beautiful, g- gorgeous amphitheater. On the Heartbreakers 40th anniversary tour, they ended the tour with three shows at the Hollywood Bowl. And as you mentioned, sadly, it would be the last three shows Tom Petty would ever perform. Although weirder still is that the last song that he played there after years of dropping it in and out of set list is the one that name checks 441, a highway that basically runs the length of Florida. So I guess you can take the rock star out of Florida, but you can't take Florida out of the rock star or something like that. Yeah, there was, and and as you mentioned, it's it's worth noting that on a on a few prior tours, uh, especially the Mojo tour, I think in particular, you know, they they really slipped American Girl out of the set list, which uh, says a lot about the the confidence of of, of the Heartbreakers that uh, they felt they could go out there and not play one of their most popular songs. But uh, this being the 40th anniversary tour, there was no way they couldn't play that song. But yeah, that was the final song the, the Heartbreakers ever performed live. Yeah, very fitting, I think. In the epilogue of your book, you write that Los Angeles celebrated Tom Petty's memory in much the same fashion as Los Angeles does a lot of things, weird and wonderful. You got to explain that one to me. So there were a lot of tributes um, you know, I, ha- I happened to be living in Los Angeles when uh, when Tom Petty died, um, and I, I because I had seen him so many times, and I said, you know what, uh, I had just started a, a new project at the time. I go, I'll see him next year because he always came, and you know, and it breaks my heart to this 
stay that I skipped on that because, you know, he's such an important artist to me. One thing that I loved about being out there at that time was just this outpouring of love for Tom Petty in Los Angeles. Uh, very much like a few years later when Kobe Bryant died, same sort of idea. There was just this, this uh, the town celebrated, you know, this big figure that was so popular with, within the community. Um, one of the things that I think was was wonderful, uh, and and the weird weird and wonderful is that there was a there was a, a walk of the vampires down Ventura Boulevard, um, where a bunch of people either dressed up like vampires or Tom Petty or just wore their Tom Petty shirts, and 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 as the song "Free Falling" the lyric goes, they they moved west down Ventura Boulevard, you know, in tribute. They were playing guitars and singing and i actually lived off of ventura boulevard at this time so you could see this this just great pouring of of support coming out and again it was just kind of an only in la thing you know i couldn't imagine many other cities having a walking of the vampires <laughs> very cool very cool we've been speaking with christopher mckittrick whose book somewhere you feel free tom petty in los angeles it's a great book on tom petty and the influence of la on his life and his music and his previous book was Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones in New York City. So I got to ask, who, what, and where is next? <laughs> See, that's the, that's the question that always come up because <laughs> since I wrote two books about a musician and a town or a city, everyone is like, what's the next one? What city, what, what group? So I do have some proposals out there for other rock and roll books. I came up as a, a film writer, really. Um, I was the U.S. editor of Creative Screenwriting Magazine. And so I really do want to write a book about film. Uh, but for whatever reason, my proposals about rock and roll keep getting picked up. But so, you know, I, I have some ideas. You know, I certainly don't want to write about an artist in the community that he or she, you know, grew up in. I'm Boston, Detroit, San Francisco. You got a lot of choices. There's a lot there. of places. Yeah. We've been speaking with Christopher McKittrick, Somewhere You Feel Free, Tom Petty in Los Angeles. is a great book. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you so much for having me again, Stephen. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.